Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Before we get going today, I want to tell you about my very good friend's podcast, Badass Digital Nomad, hosted by Kristen Wilson. Now, you might remember Kristen from episode 96 on the Expat Money Show, where she absolutely killed it. Badass Digital Nomads is an awesome podcast that helps you to master the art of living and working from anywhere in the world. Kristen Wilson is a global relocation expert and online entrepreneur who has been helping people to move abroad and become expats since 2005. She has lived and worked across 60 countries in the past 20 years, and now she can share how you too can achieve a location-independent lifestyle through her actionable how-to episodes and inspiring interviews with online entrepreneurs and world travelers. With more than 90 episodes published to date, you can learn things like the eight essential skills you need to become a digital nomad, the pros and cons of remote work visas, or how to become a digital nomad after age 50. You also won't want to miss her regular updates about which countries are open for travel and tourism, and of course, my episode on how to invest offshore. You can find Badass Digital Nomads on every podcast platform out there or by visiting badassdigitalnomads.com. Also, make sure to subscribe to Kristen's YouTube channel, Traveling with Kristen, for weekly travel videos and cost of living guides on the best places in the world to travel. Okay, let's jump into today's interview. Okay, today's interview is going to be really special. What we're doing is a three-part mini-series on sailing. So I was very fortunate to get hooked up with someone who is really well-known and respected in the sailing industry, and I asked them to find me some of the best people in the space. So these are really knowledgeable individuals, probably really famous. You probably know a lot of their work already, but what we're going to do is break them into individual episodes. So each one of these episodes is going to be a part in a in a larger series. Now, these are normal hour, hour and a half long interviews that we always do, but each one is going to be focused on a different aspect of sailing. Because what I see is that a lot of people are really interested in leaving Canada, the United States, the UK, wherever it might be that you're sitting right now listening to this episode, and you want to go somewhere else. You want to be an expat, you want to leave, you want to go exploring, you want a bit of adventure. Well, we've never talked about sailing on this channel. So I thought this is an amazing opportunity. Instead of just talking about being an expat and going to another country, 
you have an opportunity to get onto a boat and sail around the world. Like, how amazing is that? Now, I think that you will find from these conversations, I am really excited about it. I'm really, really pumped up. I'm really passionate about it. I ask a ton of questions, and I'm very, very curious because this is not my field of expertise. When I have people on and we talk about immigration or tax or law or investing, international investing, I mean, these are things that I have a really deep, deep background in and a very, very strong understanding. Sailing is not my background. Although I have sailed many times in my life and I've been on the water a ton, I'm, I know nothing compared to these people and I don't even pretend to. So I ask a lot of questions. And if you guys are interested in sailing, I think you're going to really want to tune in to today's episode and the following two weeks' episodes. So today I have an interview with Nick and Teresa, and we are going to be going into depth on not just how to learn how to sail, but how to choose and buy a boat. So listen in to today's episode, and then make sure to come back next week for part two and part three of my mini-series on sailing. Okay, let's do it. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guests have a truly amazing story, which started back in 2009. They live a life most only dream of. They sail around the world, documenting as they go for all the world to see. Now, in 2015, they set sail on an adventure, and in 2016, they created their YouTube channel, Sailing Ruby Rose. Imagine this is your life. Starting in Charleston, South Carolina, sailing down the U.S. East Coast, across the Gulf Stream to the Bahamas, and then up from the Bahamas, crossing the Atlantic Ocean and making landfall in the Azores, before finally crossing to mainland Portugal and then making your way into the Mediterranean Sea. Wow, that sounds absolutely perfect to me. I am so excited to hear the stories today about the travels and what my guests are up to, especially during the 2020 COVID and how they've been able to handle all of these things. So please welcome to the show, Nick Fabry and Teresa Vanderloo. Nick and Teresa, how are you? Welcome to the show. I'm super excited to have you here. Thanks for having us. Good morning. Good morning, Mikkel. It's uh, pretty early here, but uh, (laughs) lovely to see you in the, uh, assuming your afternoon somewhere. Yeah, afternoon here in Panama, almost end of the day, but really, really uh, beautiful weather here. I want to hear kind of how did you guys get started sailing? How did you guys leave it all behind? I want to know a bit about your backstory here. Uh, so Teresa and I, we met in 2000, hang on a minute, an eight or nine? Nine. nine. 2009, so a pretty long while ago. And we were both backpacking around India. So we had this, uh, we both independently booked tours to kind of go overland from New Delhi into Kathmandu. We met on that tour and then spent 14 days together. And then after that, decided to kind of commit to spending a little bit more time together. Just a little bit. bit. Um, (laughs) Therese was living in South Australia. I was living in London. And we kind of, she moved to London six, eight months after we met. We'd obviously kind of like done the, the whole crossing the globe in you know planes a couple of three times before between meeting and then committing, and from there we lived in London. I worked as a dentist. Therese worked as a paramedic, and I guess that having met travelling, um, we continually talked about travelling. Yeah, it was definitely one of our shared passions. It was something that we uh, really bonded over when we met in um, India, um, and. When I moved to the UK, Nick 
was already sailing. So he was already sailing on the weekend and that was his his passion, his hobby. And it was something that he did with basically all of his spare time when he wasn't actively sailing, then he was at least down on the boat, working on the boat or hanging out with his sailing mates or whatever. So he kind of said to me when I moved over, he said, you know, if you don't get into sailing, then I don't know if we're going to spend any time together because that's essentially all I do. Is that the ultimatum? Wow. Yeah, it was a little bit. It was like, I really hope you like this sailing thing because if you don't, it's going to be a problem. And I was like, oh, okay then. Well, I guess um, I guess I'll give it a go. And uh, I mean, luckily I, I grew up, you know, I'm an Australian. I grew up on the beach. I love anything to do with the water. I'd never really been sailing before, but I've been out on boats a lot before and, you know, I'd, I'd, learnt, I'd grown up kind of surfing and everything. So it really was something that I thought I'd really enjoy. So, yeah, we started sailing together and Nick started kind of teaching me the basics and uh, we'd go out and either go on like a weekend cruise with the club, you know, it was very club-centred, um, so the club would organise little cruises or um, races sometimes, uh, it was all very casual, you know, nothing too serious. And, um, that's essentially what we did with our weekends. And in the winter, you know, we'd still go down to the boat and stay on board. So that was our lives really living in London during the week and then weekends down on the boat. And I don't know, we kind of, we always knew that we wanted a lifestyle change, you know, living in London to when we met and we're talking about what our lives might look like, living in London was always a temporary thing. It wasn't forever. And we didn't quite know what that next stage would look like until we were, I guess, had a bit more time to, you know, settle down and and brainstorm and kind of, you know, get creative and think about what we wanted to do. But um, it kind of was a natural extension of, I I guess, all of our passions. You know, we love sailing, we love traveling. It kind of made sense to just pop them together. And um, that was that. That's how we started. Well, it's amazing that you guys actually met when you were traveling. So that is at the core of your relationship. Now, when I think of a lot of people and they meet their significant other, and if one has a passion for the travel and the other one is more of a homebody, or, I mean, that can sometimes cause some friction. But, I mean, you guys must have already been quite adventurous if you were backpacking and traveling through India. I think we were quite adventurous. Um, You know, it was only like a break from work. So, you know, but it was, I think it was telling that we chose to take our kind of two or three weeks off work, you know, our kind of holiday for that year and spend it backpacking around India and Nepal. Um, So we both kind of had that, that desire to do adventurous type of travel, I guess. Um, You know, obviously a lot of people choose to do different things with the holidays, but yeah, we, we wanted to do something adventurous. And so we had that in common from the very beginning and, you know, when we first met, I was saying to Nick, look, I'm going to take some time off and, you know, go backpacking around South America, or I'm going to go, I don't know, backpacking around Southeast Asia or something. I had like all these dreams about traveling that I wanted to do. Um, and Nick was equally passionate, but, you know, he, as I said, had this sailing hobby as well. So, you know, in his mind, he thought, well, I could really merge the two and to me I didn't realize that was something that people did I didn't realize that people took their boats and sailed to places and like explored them um it just seemed like a totally foreign concept to me but once I started sailing myself and I started you know reading books and um reading magazine articles I mean and reading blogs and looking on YouTube I realized actually there's a whole community of people who not only kind of sail obviously that's a huge thing but actually live on their boats full-time and um 
that's that's their lifestyle they just they just live on their boats and they sail wherever they want wherever the wind takes them and I totally agree with what you said before is that you have to if that is the case if you're a couple living on board and having the lifestyle we do both you know members of that party need to be fully committed there's no option for one of them to be you know half in half out you both have to be completely committed to that lifestyle we've seen this time time again where one you know, person is, is less committed and it is always, um, a recipe for, well, maybe not disaster, but definitely, you know, conflict, conflict and unhappiness. Yes. Unhappiness. <laughs> divorce. <laughs> and possibly divorce. <laughs> See, I, yeah. I, I have a, I have a love affair with the water. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I'm a master scuba diver. I've done my national lifeguard. I'm oh, wow. a Pisces. I love the water. I've sailed certainly nothing like you guys have, but I've always had this dream in my head that I'd be able to sail around the world with my wife. And my wife is a massive traveler as well. She's done tons of amazing trips and we've traveled together for six years now. I'm hoping that this interview is going to go really well and I'm going to make her listen to it and she's going to be really inspired. And afterwards, she's going to go, yeah, let's Just go give us your that. wife's name so we can uh, actually kind of appeal directly to her through <laughs> podcasts. Shout out. You must yeah, do absolutely. this. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I want to, okay. So this was back in 2008, 2009 that you guys met and then you moved to London. And then, so did you start sailing and practicing and learning how to sail immediately, Teresa? Or was this like down the road? Like I, I, I want to get some sort of the timeline. I guess because I want to understand how much practice you had to have before you guys were like, okay, let's go do let's like go. a big trip. Yeah. Yeah. Um, everyone who does this has a different, I guess, threshold where they feel that they've got enough experience and then they're ready to go. Some people have a very low threshold and some people have a very high threshold. And I think we are the type of people we're very, um, I don't want to say cautious because I feel like that maybe puts the wrong spin of it on it. But we're—I don't think we're gung ho. I think um, we're very I'm, mindful of the risks. We're very risk averse, I guess. I mean, when we when Therese moved to the UK, we weren't going to. The plan wasn't to go off sailing. We didn't have a plan, so yeah. that plan evolved over um, years. Yeah, and when Therese moved to the UK, we didn't have the boat that we sailed around the world on. So the plan was pretty vague uh i think because i knew that teresa had completely uprooted her life she'd taken like everything her career put it on hold and that didn't sit comfortably with me at all and the way we got around this is that she went to her boss and said look i need a year off and a boss very graciously said yeah take a year off and come back and that kind of gave us a get out of jail free card if, if it didn't work out you know because you can't just say to someone uproot your life and you know sod the consequences so when she moved to the UK you know obviously new couples they kind of have these dreams and aspirations and everyone plans for what you know what we're going to do in the future and I kind of vaguely said to her look five years and we're going to make some change so and the change hopefully will be that we're going to get out i'm going to stop working and we're going to go and do something we're going to make a seismic change and that was all it was at the yeah time, that was it? all it was that was the extent of our plan when i moved to the uk and then um in terms of actually how you know I li we lived in the uk together for five years before we actually you know left um and so five years is a long time to you know, kind of learn a skill. So, but that being said, I, I didn't really, um, 
I don't think that I would call myself a competent sailor until we actually pushed off and I was sailing all the time um, because, you know, when you're weekend sailing, you're only sailing for a couple of hours at a time. And so you don't really have that opportunity to build that level of confidence and that skill base, I don't think. It's a, certainly that's not how it happened for me. Um, so, yeah, we just sailed, sailed on the weekends and Nick kind of, you know, slowly taught me uh, how to sail. Um, and when we got to the point where we decided that this was actually a plan that we're going to put into place, we went and, you know, started looking around for a, a boat that would be the perfect boat for that adventure because the one that we had at the time wasn't the ideal boat. And then, you know, once you start kind of going down that path, you both have to be equally involved. So, but, you know, we had, when we finally did leave, Nick was very experienced. He'd been sailing for about 15 years. You know, he'd owned, this was a third boat that he'd owned. Um, he was very experienced. He'd done quite a few courses, you know, relatively highly qualified. I think you had your, what was the? How about Yacht Master? Yacht Master, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I was still on kind of the upward slope of that, my learning curve where I had to really kind of concentrate and focus and take everything in. Um, but you know, once you're living the lifestyle and it's all you're doing, then you learn everything pretty quickly. That being said, we're still learning, you know, this is, you never get off that train, you know, you're always learning when you're sailing. There's always something that you need to improve on or you've never done before or whatever. So it's always a learning experience. So, okay, so then let's talk about, say, a hypothetical other couple. Not you two. Someone, <laughs> we're going to name them. I, who, I, who do I always name my... Tom and Sally, I think, is my, always my, my hypothetical people my audience knows. Tom and Sally decide that they want to sail around the world. How much time of, of practice, of weekend sailing, of learning the ropes, of taking courses, do you think it would reasonably take someone to kind of build up enough skills that they could do an extended trip. Um, I'm going to give you the, I'm going to throw this back to your scuba diving. You're a master scuba diver. Yeah. Um, we, we dive as well. And scuba diving is a pretty good analogy because 99% of the stuff that you learn, you're only going to use less than point, less than 1% of the time. It's all safety. The rest of it is pretty straightforward. Sailing is about the same. Sailing is pretty straightforward. It's like what to do if it all goes wrong. Um, now, we knew we were lucky. Um, just when we, we, we left London and we knew that we had to get to the Canary Islands, which is about 1,500 nautical miles from where we started off before we did our Atlantic crossing. And we knew we had six months to do that. Now, that, that 1,500 miles was mostly coastal sailing. We had to do a, a three-day offshore passage to get from the southwestern part of the UK to the northwest of Spain. So that's just across the Bay of Biscay. And it took us two months to do that. So the first two months that we got from London down to the southwest of England was essentially just a repetition of what we've been doing for years, sailing during the day, tying up somewhere at night, going to sleep, getting up and doing it the next day. And that made it pretty easy to transition because if the weather's going to be bad, you'd look at the weather forecast and go, well, we'll stay here today until the weather passes through. So you're not in a position where you're caught out where, you know, and you can pick your weather windows. So that transition makes it pretty easy. When we got to Southwest England and had to do the Bay of Biscay, we took crew on. Now, um, of our, we took two crew on, two friends of ours. One of the crew that we took on board was had done the trip before. He's pretty experienced as a sailor. 
So we had someone that, uh, that had a greater pool of experience. His wife knew very, very little about sailing. So she probably, you know, in the whole league of who was the most experienced, um, our crew member was the most experienced than us and then his wife below that. But it evened it out. It made watch keeping easier. But we'd also then been on our own for two months. So we had kind of like ramped up what we knew. Three days across the Bay of Biscay was pretty uneventful. And that is a huge, huge confidence builder. The whole thing about this, it's just it's about confidence. Yeah. Another analogy I can give you is surfing or skiing. You know, if you start your career in surfing or skiing and then all of a sudden, you know, you go to some crazy surf break or you go down a black run, when you don't have the confidence, you will hurt yourself, scare yourself, and it throws your confidence back. You have to take appropriate steps forward. That's how we found it because we talk to a lot of sailors that just scare themselves witless. They go out in too big a boat with too little experience in conditions that are not right or where conditions are right, but they get caught out because the weather is fickle and does change. And yet that 1% of the time, they don't have the 99% experience for. And then it scares them. And then the boat goes back to the marina. And, you know, they're like, well, I'm not going, I'm not doing that again. Mm. So it's working within parameters of what you understand to be safe. And then if it does all go wrong, you know that you have the experience and the confidence to have firstly faith in yourself and secondly faith in the vessel that you are in. And so by the time we got to Northern Spain, we, you know, we, we thought like we had the world at our feet. And it really is, again, it's a bit like diving, I imagine, because I've done this before. If you haven't dived for a while, like your first practice dive, you know, you're like, oh, how do I do all this? Everything feels clunky and awkward. By the time you've done a couple of dives, you're like, all right, fine. You know, I'm Jack Cousteau, off I go again. <laughs> and so building confidence is about repetition, about understanding that, you know, all the anxiety you have doesn't come to pass. And so once we got to Northern Spain, essentially we were just day sailing again all the way down to Morocco. So it was literally just tight. I think we had to do one overnight sail. Yeah, yeah. And so that, that gave us another three months to kind of, you know, just day sail and enjoy the travel, enjoy it for the travel, not for the sailing. So, you know, we kind of, that was a real taste of what we always kind of wanted. As you may know, England is, the weather can be bloody miserable most of the time. And all of a sudden, you know, we've got this boat that is our home and it's suddenly in Spain and everything's hot and the food is different and the people are lovely and it's cheaper and it's completely different culturally. So we're, you know, motoring on, sailing on and finding all these amazing ports, people that, you know, cultures we'd never experienced before. And that is pretty reaffirming when you're like, okay, this is why we're doing it. We, you know, we've woken up in an anchorage in, you know, in Portugal and, you know, the sun is shining. It's going to be 33 degrees today. We can fish off the back of the boat. We can, you know, go ashore and get grilled sardines and a cold beer for like a couple of bucks. And yeah. And then, so by the time we got to, to the Canary Islands, to do this 3000 mile crossing, we had done essentially probably what was the, the the stage we needed to do, which was build confidence in ourselves to kind of understand that, yes, we were far from our home port, but in the six months that we'd been away from our home port, nothing horrendous had happened. We'd learned a lot more about ourselves and about our boat, and we were pretty eager to, to get mm. across the Atlantic. Yeah, for sure. And, and that was the six months that, for me, was a huge learning curve. And so I started off that that specific journey knowing really quite you know very little to be honest I knew how to sail but I didn't know how to problem solve if something went wrong essentially um and I didn't really have faith in the boat because I didn't I never had to push the boat I, I was never kind of 
in charge of the boat next to the skipper. Um, so I kind of, I wasn't quite sure where the limits were and where my comfort zone ended, if that makes sense. But um, by the time we got to the Canaries and we had a couple of really lovely sails and we had, we did have one offshore sail. We had to go from Morocco to the Canaries, which was I think 230 miles or something. So it's a couple of nights at sea and the weather, it wasn't unsafe, but it was really uncomfortable, you know, quite big swell, really windy. And um, that, and we made a couple of errors, nothing too drastic, but we did make some mistakes and that really pushed us and that pushed the boat as well. And I think we got into the Canaries thinking, okay, like we handled that. It was fine. You know, that was rougher than what we were hoping for, but it's all okay. So we got into the Canaries. And the other thing that I think we should mention is that we did the Atlantic crossing as a rally. So we had an organization that we signed up to and we did it as a rally. So there were about 200 other boats doing the crossing at the same time. Now, when wow. you leave. All in like sight of one another? No. Like you can actually. Exactly. No. Okay. So yeah. this is the thing. Yeah. So you, you're all together in the lead up, which is very reassuring and exciting and everyone feels the same way. They're excited, but very nervous. And there was, you know, a lot of kind of, yeah, apprehension, um, but anticipation. It was great atmosphere, very fun. But once you leave, once you kind of, you know, t- throw off the lines and, and you're off, the first day you can see other boats. But once you get more than, well, your line of sight when you're at sea is, what, about 20 miles? You can't yeah, see much beyond 20 miles, um, especially if you're looking for like a little sailboat on the horizon. You know, they're not very visible. It's a big tanker, maybe you can see it a bit further, but you feel very alone after just the first 24 to 48 hours. So you kind of are on your own. You've got your, obviously, you've got your radio networks that you can tap into. And you do have, you know, your sat phone. So you can, if something goes wrong, obviously you have a way of communicating with with the outside world, but essentially you feel alone. Um, and again, you know, that those first few days of our Atlantic crossing were pretty rough. Um, it was extremely windy. It was about 40 knots and quite big lumpy swell. And that was, that was the, the most that we'd ever pushed our boat and ourselves physically at, but at that point. So you know, but you have to go through these um, experiences, you know, you have to push yourself and get outside your comfort zone, otherwise you never learn. So that was a real learning experience as well. And, uh, you know, obviously it wasn't pleasant at the time, but I'm very glad that, you know, that it happened that way because otherwise, you know, you, you need to have those experiences to learn. But, you know, so I think that what you said before, like how long does, do, does someone need to be able to get to the point where they're able to cross an ocean, for example, a, I don't think it's about time. I think it's about number of hours spent on the water. It's about how you spend those hours on the water. Do you just like sail around a lake or do you kind of take baby steps and every time you go out, maybe push yourself a little bit more, do one, you know, kind of overnight passage when the weather's really, really lovely and you know that it's not going to be a problem and then perhaps push yourself a little bit further the next time. You know, you take those baby steps and um, build up slowly. And as I said, there's a fine line between kind of picking your weather window and being sensible and saying, I'm going to go when the weather's really good. And kind of knowing that if you always, if you're too cautious, then you'll never push yourself and you'll never have those learning experiences that you do need. So there's a line to tread there. But, um, you know, we, we had, we've met loads of sailors that literally, I mean, we had, we've got a really good um, set of friends who did one sailing course and you learn a couple of skills on your sailing course but you don't have any experience once you've finished that so they're just in one like three-day sailing course and then they set off on their 
adventure. So they left the UK having just done that. They After didn't three days. even know. How, mm, yeah, wow. They didn't even know how to set their sail. <laughs> they didn't know how to set their sails. Their strategy was that they would wait for a day with no wind, so they don't didn't even need to use their sails. They would just turn on their engine and motor. That was that was the strategy. And they're yeah. they're sailing along the coast of Spain like this. They get to the Canaries. They're there at the same time we were, and they didn't know how. They barely knew how to sail, and they crossed the Atlantic only using one of their sails, their foresail, their, their head sail, the, the smaller sail in front, up to the front of the boat. They didn't even use their big main sail because they weren't quite, you know, they, they didn't have the confidence to use one of their sails, which is absurd. But, you know, it was all in their attitude. Like he was like, you know. He's ex-military. He's an ex-military guy. He did like two tours in Afghanistan or whatever. His, his tolerance for risk was completely different to ours. So, and they made it. They sailed around the Caribbean. You know, they they did it. They managed to sail back to the UK. So they lived on board for like so three, four possible, years. So it's possible, but maybe it's, it's not your recommendation of exactly. What to do. You can do yeah. it. Would yeah. I recommend you do it that way? <laughs> Probably not, but it's possible. Depends. So, do you think that it is a good starting place for people to take a organized course and then build up experience from there, or what would be like a a very simple pathway if people decide that they want to learn more about this? We will just take a quick break. In a lot of the circles that I run in, the content creators are being deplatformed. People are being banned on Twitter, censored on Facebook, and YouTube channels are being demonetized. Basically, cutting off people's ability to reach their audience and share their message with the world. And it has gotten even worse than that. Entire companies are under siege. Servers are being shut down, and their products are being taken off of the App Store and Google Play. There is no question about it there are some scary things going on right now. I want to make sure that I can continue to provide for you the best news and information from the offshore space every single week. That's why I want you to pause this episode right now and visit expatmoneyshow.com forward slash protection to sign up for EMS Pulse, my weekly newsletter. In it, you will find personal insights from my travels and over 21 years of experience in the international space. We will be looking at foreign businesses, generating income online, asset protection, corporate structures, new visas for digital nomads, and a whole lot more. So I hope you will take me up on this opportunity and sign up for my newsletter to make sure that you can continue to receive the best from the offshore space now directly to your inbox. Go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash protection. Okay, let's jump back into the episode. Okay, I I think it, it, it the question is actually pretty complicated, and I think that it depends on. I think as a starting point, how you know what your age group is. I think for us, we were pretty lucky that we were young enough to be able. To, we had the time. We knew we had the time ahead of us um, to kind of take it slowly, and we still had careers in place. And so, if you're in that kind of framework where you are like, well, okay, well, we'll see how it goes. I would actually take it back one step. I got into sailing, not because I decided that, you know, it was, it was something I had to do. I literally scrimped and saved a lot of money up to buy a boat that essentially didn't, it was a really, really cheap secondhand boat. I think it was 30 years old when I bought it, 25 foot. You know, it, it wasn't any good. And the reason I bought that is because, you know, over the years, I kind of had got into hobbies and things that never really took off. And after a year or so, I kind of like, you know, put it all back on eBay and started again. So mm-hmm. I wanted something which was cheap enough that if I kind of sold it, I wouldn't, you know, bankrupt myself. So I spent about $7,000, $7,000 on this boat. So, you know, this is what we're looking at. It's not, a, not an expensive piece of kit. 
And I've been pretty open about this, that I love the sailing. The sailing was amazing technically. And, you know, going out on the water, it was, you know, we, we had the boat up a river. And so it was always protected waterways. But the thing that really drew me to it was the people that you meet. It is a very, very, very different community to the life that I had in London. And this is before Therese. So, you know, working as a dentist, I know this is, a, you know, called the expat money show, but money really didn't interest me um, that much. And the reason is um, I kind of was lucky that I had a career that allowed me to make a good living. And I was young enough to be able to appreciate that. And then you kind of, you know, when you start making money, you come out of college and you, you've got no money. And then all of a sudden you get, you're getting paychecks. You're like, oh, blimey, I've got this money. And then you go out and buy things. And it kind of got to the point where I just didn't get any satisfaction from buying things. And obviously as all the dentists, you know, all our careers progressed, you know, the things that people would buy would become bigger and bigger and bigger. And I remember, you know, it got to the point where dentistry was just literally the social life of dentistry involved discussing what Mercedes you were going to buy next and discussing what your golf handicap was. And I've never been into golf and I kind of I, continually, you know, upping the ante and getting into like a pissing competition about, you know, who's got the best car was not something I wanted to do. So, Finding sailing with just a lot of people, like a lot of blue collar workers, a lot of people that were just so like real. And it didn't matter what you did, didn't matter how much money you earned, as long as you were out there and getting involved and you were in the pub on the Friday night, that they that you were included. And that was a real that to me was like I want to be part of this community and not this kind of like the the, the dental community and the kind of like so that was a big transition for me. And I knew that that's what I wanted. So getting involved in that sailing club. Um, that's how I believe everyone should really start getting involved in your local sailing club, doing stuff that's cheap. And when you're younger, even when you're older, a lot of people say, how do I get into this? I've got no money. I can't afford a boat. Um, I say to them, just go down to your local sailing club and just say, can I get involved in some way? Can I help? Can I crew? Can I kind of learn the ropes? Pardon the pun. And I, I will take the Pepsi challenge that no one will ever say no to you. Maybe if you're in, like, if there's a sailing club in the Hamptons or something like that, they'll tell you to leave. But for most people, there is um, there are local sailing clubs that are pretty laid back and will include everyone because sailing is normally a pursuit that is kind of in decline and they really do welcome new members. I remember being in the Bahamas a couple of years ago and meeting members of the Kansas Sailing Club. Now, to the best of my knowledge, I mean, Kansas is landlocked. So, you know, it's not near the coast, but they've got sailing clubs all over, the you know, the US. So... That's the first thing. So how to get into it, go and find your local sailing club if you've got. And the reason that that is, to me, the best way to do it is it's almost free. You haven't got to invest in a boat. Secondly, you are going to be surrounded from day one by people that have more experience, that know what they're doing and will hold your hand, sometimes actually physically, <laughs> when you're scared. Um, <laughs> But also, it is a huge, huge repository of knowledge that is permanently on tap for you. And two of my friends, my best friend, John, is, and I've got two best friends, John and Shina. They both are some of the most skilled sailors I've ever met, but they have no formal qualifications. And I also have a friend who is a yacht master instructor who will remain nameless, but he's useless. He honestly, he's a liability. I wouldn't trust him to get into the bath without like killing him, half killing himself. So there's this huge body of knowledge and it, that's how you build confidence by knowing that you're with people that when you go out for the day, 
if you're on their boat or they're in a boat near you and it's a club cruise, that they've deemed it safe. And so you haven't, you, these decisions that, that are taken aren't made by you. So you, you know, well, if they're all going, I can go with them and it's going to be safe because they've said it's okay. And if I get into trouble, they're like half a mile away in their boat so they can come back and get me. That to me was a huge thing. The thing that I don't agree with, and unfortunately it is something that a lot of people do, and it's driven partly by people being rushing to get into sailing because they're either of a certain age or because they're impatient, or because brokers have told them that this is the way to go. And they go out and they buy a big boat. And we see this time and time again, and we get so many emails about this. And even we've got friends of ours uh, who own a YouTube channel, and they've got sailors, and they respectfully disagree with our way of doing it you know, go jumping in first, they've said, well, go out and buy yourself a big boat because that's what we did. We didn't, couldn't sail. We went and bought a 45 foot, 43 foot catamaran and we set off and did it. And I guess we're all allowed to have different opinions. I do really value their input as sailors. But the problem is the way I look at it is that the risk is higher. Now, I think, I think, yeah, you have, it, it comes down to attitude as well, because, you know, you can have a very gung-ho attitude, go out and buy yourself a massive boat and then just be very like oblivious to the risks and you put yourself and others in danger, or you can do that. You know, another couple can do exactly that. They can go out and buy themselves a big boat, but they can be very risk adverse and very, very kind of respectful of the amount of skill and knowledge that they don't have and kind of really work hard to build up their skill level in a responsible way. So I think a lot of it is personality is attitude. Yeah. But I do think that people are swayed. And I think that there is a lot of, you know, I mean, you, there's a lot of disinformation and misinformation out there about sailing. And I think that the thing about this is that boat brokers generally, and I say generally, cause it's not all of them want to sell you boats and they want to sell you a boat that essentially makes them money. So if your retiree couple in their you know, early 60s goes to a boat show and sees a beautiful million-dollar boat, which essentially has all the mod cons that their apartment or their house has, it's easy to sell to the, to the couple as this is the dream that you're going to have. And it's like, you know. Yeah, this is what you need. Yeah. You have to have this boat. You're not going to be happy on a smaller boat, <clears throat> on a simpler boat. You have to have this big, complicated, expensive boat. It yes. happens all the time. So Tom and Sally buy the boat. They suddenly realise that they've got this pretty expensive asset that they don't really know how to sail. And I can, one thing I can guarantee you hundred percent is you can do a damn sight more damage with a big boat than you can with a little boat. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot more dangerous the, you know, all the systems, literally they, they upscale faster, you know, the size of the, you know, your sails, the size, what you have to deal with. And so you are literally, it's the equivalent of day one on the ski slopes. You're doing a double black diamond run, you know, and you're at the top of the slopes and you're like, off you go. Yeah. Compound that to that, something that you said at the very beginning or you asked at the very beginning of this interview, a lot of people, when they go into sailing, there is one partner that is driving it and there's another partner that is kind of like the reluctant, but yeah, well, it's his or her dream. Let's just go along with it and see how it goes. And a lot of the time, how the partner that wants to do this convinces the reluctant partner, and I'm deliberately not assigning gender roles to, gender roles to this, is that they say, well, look, I know you don't want to give up your house and your dishwasher and the cats and the dogs, but if we buy this big boat, then you can get, you can bring the cats and the dogs and you can have the dishwasher and we can have all these things and we can have air con and off we can go. And then 
it kind of sells the dream to the reluctant partner. And believe me, we have seen women that are driving this and men that are um, kind of, you know, reluctant. So they get over the first hurdle, but they create a different hurdle for themselves. And they've got this really big boat and then they sail off. It doesn't, ha it doesn't work out the way it does. And they scare themselves because they don't have the experience. And they've got this huge boat and, yeah, getting into it that way, while it is only our opinion, is not something I would recommend. In addition to that, there are very few people nowadays, well, not that there have ever been, that have just got an infinite pot of money. You know, it, it doesn't grow on trees as yet. Mm -hmm. um, and when you buy a boat, you know, whatever it costs, whether you spend $1,000 on a boat or you spend $10 million on a boat, your broker's going to charge you 10% to sell it. That's just, you know, that's across the board. So... If you buy a $5,000 boat and, you know, you sell it, you've lost 500 bucks to the broker. That's just the way it works. That's before any reductions. You do it with a million dollars, you've lost $100,000. And the brokers, it's like that film, The Wolf of Wall Street. They don't care whether you buy and sell the boats, whether you enjoy it or not, because they get paid at both ends. And brokers just go, well, okay, well, you don't get on with it you know, okay, we'll sell it for you. Of course, we'll sell it for you. Sorry, it didn't work out. And here's our 10% again, we, you know. And so I, I think that finding ethical brokers is super important. And that is, if you're going to do it fast, if you are going to do it, you know, and you're like, we haven't got the time to mess around, but we've got, you know, kids are out of college. We need to go. We've got about 10 years before, you know, we want to kind of like really, you know, move to Florida and play golf or, you know, do something different. Let's go now. Find an ethical broker. And they do exist. And we are working with a company called Seawind at the moment to build our new boat. And they are, and I'm not just blowing smoke up them because, you know, we're working with them. They are pretty damned ethical. And they will say to customers, this boat is too big for you. It's wrong for you. Start in a smaller boat and see how you get on with it because this boat is too fast. It's not, you know, you don't buy the 52-foot version of the race boat. I know you've got the money. But we have to look out. We have to look out for you. And you know, when we walk the, you know, the, the boardwalk at Annapolis Boat Show, we don't often see this. We just see brokers selling the fifty-foot boats. You know, and we even got into this discussion with a Canadian couple. We were living in France last year um, in a very, very big marina that actually commissions catamarans. And we met this French-Canadian couple. I think he, she was a pilot, an airline pilot, wasn't she? And he did something else. And they had bought a 40-foot a forty catamaran. And we got talking to them because, obviously, they knew us from our YouTube channel. And they said that in the, when they were in the States, the broker in the States said to them, you have to have the 50-foot version. Now, the difference between 40 and 50-foot is essentially double it, 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 because the internal volume of boats increases by its cubic volume. So a 50-foot boat is essentially twice as big as a 40-foot boat. Um, so the, the American broker for this brand, which we ran nameless, was like 50-foot is the bare minimum you're going to need. You can't do it in mm. anything less because that gives for you ABC. A, around the world cruising for a long Even for what it, yeah. It, it doesn't even okay. matter. It doesn't matter. They're like, yeah. you just need it. <laughs> and just, this just couple flat out just in, in <laughs> you general. You just need this boat. <laughs> okay, and this couple were, But this couple were astute enough to go, actually, we don't want a 50-foot boat. We want a 40-foot boat. And they went to the European brokers who were like, all right, yeah, 44 will do you fine. It's not what you need. So be aware that, you know, finding an ethical broker is, is probably, if you want to do it in a rush, go and find, and they do exist, read reviews, get a lot, use advice from other sailors. Well, and I think that's, 
some good advice all around. And, and this certainly circles back to your point earlier about how to learn sailing and go to the, the club and meet people and get involved in the community. Because I think everyone who listens to my show knows that I'm a big proponent for mentoring, for working with people who have actually done things in real life. I'm, although I am a voracious reader, I read books from people who have actually done stuff. I don't uh, go out there and read textbooks all day long. I mean, I want to understand from people who have real life experience. And I mean, this is exactly what you guys are saying here. Talk to people who actually sail, who do this for extended periods of time, and ask them what they're doing, what their advice is. Start to know the community, and maybe don't rush into something that is twice as big as you need and probably a lot more money than you need to spend, especially if it is your first boat. My goodness. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the boat that you do have right now. And let's talk a little bit about the boat that you guys are about to have, because I know that there's some exciting things going on for you guys. So the boat, the boat that we do have now, we actually, we, we recently sold her. So she's, she's, she's with another owner, but the boat that we, we did our, um, our first trip on, she was a um, single hull, monohull, 40 foot English built, pretty strong boat. And we bought that boat because we, we went to, once Teresa and I had kind of happened upon this plan that, yeah, we, we are going to go sailing. We're going to go off and do a couple of years away. And we did work out. We had a 32-foot boat. Um, so you're looking, that's about 10 meters. It wasn't big enough for us to live on board full time. And it wasn't to my launch. It wasn't well built enough. It was pretty flimsy. Um, so we went looking for the next boat and we found this Okay, let's pause for boat. a second. So... While we're going through different boats, maybe you can also give me a little bit of insight on what these types of boats might cost. Because when you say it's a flimsy boat and it's not wasn't built very well and it wasn't going to do, if you can give me any type of insights on that, I think that's really interesting as we're... Okay, if I take... The, so I'll do it in a couple of baseline ways. Firstly, to someone that's had no sailing experience at all, like zero, you, they wouldn't know one end of the boat from another. Best analogy I could give you, you want to go across like deserts. You want to do the Paris-Dakar rally. Yep. You don't go out and buy a $5,000 Fiat 500 and try and go across because you're, you're just going to, you're going to get it wrong. It's going to, it's not built for the job. So <clears throat> you go and buy a, you know, a proper off-roading, you know, pedigree. And, and that has got a better chance of doing the job because it's built, it's meant for it. So in the same way that there's a spectrum of automobiles, from the flimsiest, cheapest made car to the to the kind of the, 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 a real sturdy car, the same applies with boats. And as an extension to that, you know, you can buy very expensive cars that won't do the job either. You can get by a Ferrari, it won't do the Paris Dakar rally because it's not designed for it. So the same applies to boats. When it comes to boats and um, what you are looking for, you can buy boats that are designed to be fast and to be safe and sometimes they can be fast and flimsy but they tend to be flimsy do you want to to go fast it's got to be lightweight same with cars so you have to kind of look to numerous factors like how many people are on board if you've got 12 burning men all you know it's crew and you want to get across an ocean quickly you buy a lightweight boat that's got the shape, you know, that's performance oriented. It's like fine in profile. You see these America's Cup boats, they don't look like lumps. You know, the big, you know, the carbon sails. And 
that is probably you know pretty it's what you need if if, if you're doing it as a, as a group of experienced sailors for a couple like us that were just two of us we were looking for something that essentially the first the three the three big things you look for in a boat number one safety number two safety number three safety that's it that you just want to get their safety everything else doesn't matter if it's slow doesn't matter if it's ugly it's going to get there safely so we wanted a boat that had all these features and for that it was to do with build quality and how what it was designed to do what the boat was built for so our boat she was a southerly brand called southerly english made boat and I knew that the hulls, the, thing, kind of the, mo the most important thing, the hull was well-made. She was a thick, big old fiberglass hull. So it wasn't light and it wasn't flimsy. And that means that she's going to be more resistant to impact. She's going to flex less under load. And because it's hand-built and they've got this pedigree, you know that what you're getting is a quality product. You're not getting something that's built on a production line. Now, you can buy production line boats, and the, the, most people do that. And those, but those boats are like the Swiss Army knives of boats. They do everything, but they don't do anything particularly well. And if you want to take a production boat and sail it across an ocean, you're probably best off upgrading certain components to it, like making sure that you know the the, the wires that hold the mast up are, are you know strong enough, are thick enough, that the sails are strong enough and thick enough. And the boat that we had before. Um, the one we did the Atlantic crossing on was a production boat. And I, over the course of the three or four years I owned her, had to upgrade so many things because they just weren't well built enough. Because if you buy, if you build to a price point, unfortunately, some quality has to give it in most cases. And so that's what we were looking for, strength and safety. And that's where we were. And there were other features of that boat that made it appealing to us. The biggest one aside from that was that it was a pretty beautiful boat to live inside someone once said to me again drawing back to the car analogy you spend like 95 percent of your time looking at the inside of your car you don't look at the outside of it that much so it can look really lovely on the outside but if it you know if it's all stripped out carbon fiber on the inside and you've got bucket seats and you haven't got a stereo or air conditioning it's a pretty miserable place to be for long terms so, you know you talk about these like porsches that just for event for track days but the boat that we had we came, I went on board that boat. We went on board that boat when we bought it, and we thought, yeah, we could live on this. This is this is nice. This is exactly what we want. We're not going to be tired of looking at the inside of this boat. It had it was also functional. It had a large outside area because we knew we were going to the tropics, so we knew that we'd be able to kind of like dive off the back of the boat and fish on the back of the boat and all these things. So that's what we were looking for: something that was firstly safe, secondly safe, thirdly safe, but also that we could live on and the. The other point was, could we afford it? Because, you know, budget wasn't limitless. And we... Uh, so, and it's worth pointing out that, you know, we could have, when we were shopping for a new boat, with the... I mean, we went over budget with the with our Southerly 38. That was more than we intended to spend. But with that same budget, she's 40... She was 40 foot. We could have bought a 50 foot production boat. So you can get a much bigger boat for less money. It, as Nick said, it really just depends on what your priorities are and, you know, where you're kind of happy to spend that money. We prefer something smaller, better. More manageable. You know, better and... quality. More manageable, but also yeah. the quality <clears throat> of the actual build was far, far higher. And that was important for safety, for comfort, uh, for lots of different factors. Um, you know, from even just a boat maintenance point of view, you know, the, the, 
better it's built, the better it will work. And so the less time you'll spend replacing parts, fixing things that break, you know, um, preemptively swapping out certain parts of the boat to kind of upgrade that, that, that certain part so that, you know, you don't have a problem in the future. That happens a lot. People buy a production boat and they think, oh God, you know, the winches, they need to be bigger or, you know, the blocks need to be upgraded and they have to swap out all of these little parts of the boat to make it kind of future-proof. So, so I mean, the, our thought process in buying this, this boat, I think we started off with how big a boat do we need? And we came, it came down to 40 foot, 12 meters. And the, my rationale for that at the time, and I say mine because essentially the, that the last boat was the, the thought the process was driven by me. Yeah. Because I Therese at the time didn't have that much experience. Um, I'd only been sailing for about two years, and yeah. even then I wasn't really at that point. I was into it, but I had a lot of you know my life was split between sailing and my life in London, so mm-hmm. I didn't really dedicate much yeah. extra time. So you guys to had so- the small boat that you guys were practicing on and then when you want to yep. do the around the world that's when you guys upgraded to the more sturdy Correct. boat to, yeah okay and, yeah. and nick drove that decision so as well I, I wasn't really involved so number one was how big does this boat need to be and to me at the time there was a sweet spot um the boat to be big enough to be fast enough as a as a, as a, as a rule of thumb the, the longer the boat the faster it goes so the quicker you can get across oceans but in our whole preparation about safety, it's like, what is the biggest boat that one person can safely handle? So that means if there's one person have, you know, asleep or incapacitated through seasickness, what's the biggest boat that I could handle on my own? What's the biggest boat that I could handle if, heaven forbid, we got struck by lightning and we couldn't raise a mainsail with an electric winch? So we had to put the sail, everything had to be done just with hands. And at the time, and probably still to the certain amount, between 40 and 45 foot is the only place I want to be with this. You know, you've got a 55-foot boat. We had friends with a 55-foot boat. Beautiful thing. They were a couple of retirees. They're some of our best friends. Bought this 55-foot boat. But he was 63 when they set off. And I think if they had lost their electrics at sea through whatever reason, they would be, struggle. they would really bloody struggle to mm. just to just to work the boat to get it to sail across oceans and i'm like well i don't want to be in that position i don't want to be worried about what do we do this is this boat is too big for us because it's too powerful um so 40 to 45 foot was exactly where we wanted to be with with size and we went to the southampton boat show to actually check out the boats we actually shortlisted two boats neither of neither of them were the model that we ended up with and we went on board these boats, had a look around, and I just literally, they were they were so flimsy. They were so flimsy, and there were so many design points of the inside of these boats. I thought this is just not good. Example, you know, boats rock around a lot. That's obvious. But then one hole, they tilt around all over the place. But there were like sharp corners everywhere, like pointed corners to cabinets, and really sharp. And Boat, they have to be rounded so that if you get tossed across the cabin and you land on your head, mm-hmm. you know, you don't take your eye out with the corner of a boat. You end up with a black eye, but you don't end up with a medical emergency at sea. And so it, appear, it became pretty obvious pretty early on that a lot of these designers, when they went to the drawing board, weren't designing boats to do serious offshore passages. They were, there wasn't the nod to safety that they needed to be with even rounded corners. So... The boat that we ended up with was literally, it was like our wild card boat. 
and we went to the we looked at it we're like yeah i want this uh, and then we looked at the price tag and we're like oh, yeah, we can't have it and that and there's the, there's yeah. the issue the boat that we wanted was twice as much as our budget can you because share it was the price or is that a public knowledge or is that a private no, we knowledge? you can go on the internet i think we paid um about four hundred thousand dollars for ruby rose um of which we had saved like mad and had half that so we had to go to the bank and take a pretty extensive mortgage out to pay for that and at the time it was kind of at odds with our philosophy on leaving because we wanted to be completely debt-free we don't want to kind of like what sail off with you know the reams and reams of debts but we kind of took the we took the line that if we sell the business that we have, we can pay off the mortgage. So we will end up debt free. We just, you know, we've taken the sale of the business and used it to kind of clear uh, in our, our, our debts. So yeah, we, we, that was what it was, you know, we, we, we bought the boat for about $400,000 and, and zero regrets because honestly, what I would say to you is that it's pretty like buying a, you know, a cheaper car, we had that boat for nigh on nine years, and she looked as good on the day we sold her as the day that we bought her. Must have been a sad day to get rid of her, though, I imagine. It was sad, but it was also something that we'd been anticipating for a long time. You know, she we knew probably two years before we actually sold her that this was going to happen. Um, when we were in the Bahamas, uh, as you described our journey before, I think in the intro, actually, you know, we, we made it across the Atlantic, Caribbean, up to the US, spent the season in Charleston and then came back down to the Bahamas. And when we were in the Bahamas, that was kind of, we. there was a fork in the road ahead of us. We could either continue uh, through the, the Panama Canal, go to, um, you know, the pa- Panama, where you are right now, and uh, into the Pacific. Um, and we knew that once we were through the Panama Canal, we were committed essentially to returning to the UK by the very, very, very long way around <laughs> because there's no turning around. For you can't sure. turn around and come back. Yeah. Um, the winds won't, the weather, the winds won't allow that. So we had to make a decision in, in the Bahamas. Are we going to go west or do we want to think about upgrading the boat? Because there were some issues, not with the boat itself, but just we had, I think actually, the simplest way of putting it, we just grown out of it. We had been living on this boat for I think three years at that point, and we realised that if we were con- going to continue sailing and living on a boat full time, then we did want something a little bit bigger. We want we realised that there were some limitations to a forty foot boat in a lot of ways that it was perfect, and having a smaller boat is an advantage. But there are disadvantages with having a smaller boat, particularly when you're looking at going to more remote, isolated places like a lot of islands in the Pacific, which is something we really, really wanted to do. She just doesn't have the storage. You know, we just couldn't take as much with us. Um, she didn't have the waterline length, so we couldn't. We weren't very fast or quite slow. And when you're crossing big bodies of water, that kind of comes into it. You know, you want something that is a little bit quicker so that you get to your destination sooner. You can outrun weather. We got caught in lots of a lot of times. We got caught in weather that bigger boats managed to stay in front of. So there were a lot of advantages to upgrading to something bigger. And we thought while we're upgrading to something bigger, we maybe we should look at a catamaran because there's lots of advantages of having a catamaran over a monohull if you're living on board. Um, so that was kind of our decision process. So yeah, we decided to move back to sail back to Europe, sell, sell the boat in the UK because that was where she's built and that's where the market is. 
And um, so by the time we did all that, you know, this is two years later, we'd anticipated that day for a long time to say goodbye. And yes, it was, it was sad, but it was also a relief. You know, it's like when you sell anything <laughs> and no matter how attached to it you were, you're also relieved that you sold it because, you know, you have to sell that item to move on to the next chapter. So yeah, yeah. mixed think feelings. It, think of it like your kids leaving for college. <laughs> like you, you We've have, never been through this ourselves. No, yeah, <laughs> you're sad to see them go, but damn it, you want to have a good party when they're <laughs> at the door. Um, like my house is like, <laughs> Yeah, it, yeah. I think that we were we were relieved. And also this, we sold Ruby Rose in September last year. And obviously 2020 was a real roller coaster. You know, we, we're still on that ride. And uh, there was a lot going on. So to be able to sell that boat in that very uncertain time was a surprise to yeah. us. We, we really weren't expecting it. And when the buyer came along, we she, he, he was a great buyer, um, lovely couple, and the whole process was really smooth. And we walked away just thinking that was actually a very lucky, you know, we were very lucky that we managed to sell her, her during COVID and uh, to a great new owner. And the whole process was very smooth. So we were kind of actually- Yeah, there was a sense of relief. Uh, there was a real sense of relief, yeah. Because I think one of the reasons that I also wanted to have you guys on the episode and, and talk about this is because in my business, I work a lot in immigration. I help a lot of people to move overseas. We do coaching and consulting and help them get the visas and the bank accounts and the companies. But I mean, there are so many people who are fed up of what is happening with COVID, with these lockdowns. And there's so many people who just want to leave. And I mean, sailing around the world seems like a very viable option. I mean, you're not going to be catching COVID if you're out there in the middle of the Atlantic or if you're sailing around beautiful tropical islands. Yeah, you say that, <laughs> but actually... Is that, that not the case? I mean, that's uh, maybe this is just my romantic thoughts, you, but look, I don't know. D- and there is... Exactly. And so I think that there is this romantic notion that if you're sailing on a boat, essentially you've escaped the worst of COVID in the last 12 months. Um The reality is that, yeah, you might have escaped COVID, but you've become really badly caught up in a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of issues with borders. Um, So we actually felt a sense of real relief that we weren't out cruising when COVID struck the world in March last year. We were en route back to our boat. We're actually about to start our new season. You know, it had been winter in in Europe, so we had taken the opportunity to see family. Um, We were actually in Australia. Nick flew out ahead of me in February to go back to the boat to start to get her ready for the sailing season. And obviously by the time I got back, you know, the whole world had shut down and so things were different. So we didn't get back to Ruby Rose until May. We were very lucky to get back at that point. Um, and we did spend a couple of months over the summer sailing her. She was in France at the time, back to the UK where we sold her. So we really dodged a bullet because a lot of our friends who are out cruising, they were in the Caribbean, they were in the Pacific. They're a long way from home, a long way from anywhere. And I mean, some of our friends were mid-Atlantic and they you know, left the Canaries when the world was normal and they arrived in the Caribbean when the world had completely changed. And they actually didn't really know much of what had happened because they had said to their family before they left, we don't want to know any bad news. Because once you're in the middle of the ocean, and this happens actually quite a lot, once you're in the middle of the ocean, we don't, like, there's nothing you can do. So if there's an emergency, a family emergency, God forbid someone dies. I mean, unfortunately, we've heard of this quite a few times. You know, there's nothing you can do about it. You can't just stop the boat and be like, all right, see ya. So... 
it actually is not uncommon for people to say to their family, look, if, you know, something happens, don't tell me about it. Wait until I get there. Um, Because also your focus, you know, you've got enough going on with being in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So they said to their family, don't tell us anything bad. We'll, you know, talk to you when we get in. Yeah, and they got to the Caribbean and and, uh, the essentially they couldn't actually clear into any of the islands because all the borders were closed. Um, They literally were stuck just floating off the islands with a very rapidly dwindling supply of food and fresh water because they had a very small boat. They didn't have much on board. Um, And they couldn't, they could not clear in. And the other problem was that she was Italian, travelling on Italian passport. And at that time, Italy was you know, in, in a real mess, to be honest. So just the very fact that she was Italian stopped them from entering. If anyone had done a quarantine, I mean, these people have just done a quarantine. If they just crossed the Atlantic exactly. Ocean, like you'd think that someone would be able to use common sense. And well, there was no common sense no. at play at all. In fact, I think common sense has gone out a, the window. So look, and we've heard this tons and tons and tons of stories of cruisers getting really badly caught out and actually being put in not just like inconvenient, awkward positions, but downright dangerous positions. Wow. We have heard of stories and obviously when this all happened, people went online and was like, this is my situation. So there's a lot of, you know, stories coming out of people in the middle of the Indian ocean having to leave for um, cyclone season or hurricane season, you know, depends where you are, what you call it. Um, and literally they could not leave where they were because no other country almost in the world would accept them. And um, kind of border force officials and bureaucrats, they don't understand the realities of sailing. They say, well, just leave the boat and fly home. Oh yeah. Okay. I'll just, I'll just leave the boat and fly home. Like essentially if you do that, you are, you could be literally just giving up your boat. It's like setting fire to your house. Like you're like, okay, well I'll just leave it then. So it was so difficult as I said, in some cases, really dangerous for a lot of cruisers when this all happened. And unfortunately, things haven't actually improved that much in the last 10 months. You know, people are still really caught up with all these restrictions. And it's, as I said, it's inconvenient for the vast majority. For a minority, it's actually really serious. We actually have a few friends of ours stuck in Panama. Do you really? Like they're literally midway. Yeah, they got midway. Yeah, two two sailing channels. Uh, yeah, but at least they, they could leave their boat in a marina. Yes. You know, that's Panama's still relatively close to places and it's got really good infrastructure for sailing and boats in general. Hmm. Um, but yeah, you imagine being out in some like random Pacific Island when this all hit and then being told, well, you can't actually sail to your next destination, but not actually being able to go anywhere else and you don't have any food on board. And the cyclone's coming. And the cyclone's coming. <laughs> this, this is, this, it sounds ridiculous. This is literally the, the situation reality, yeah. that a lot of cruisers were facing. So yeah, I actually think that 2020 was a bad year to be out there cruising. But inversely, boat sales, the value of used boats has gone through the roof. So people are buying boats up and new boats. There's a huge, long, long waiting list for new boats at the moment, um, for you know, waiting for build slots. And, yeah, used boats, um, the used boat market has really, um, yeah, it's crazy. It's, 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 yeah. There's huge demand at the moment for boats. Well, I mean, I know just everybody just seems to want to leave right now. I mean, my business has mm. just gone through the roof. I mean, I don't even get a chance to right. sleep anymore. It's just trying to help as many <laughs> people nice as possible, <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah, it's a good, good problem to have. But I mean, at the same time, I kind of, I get frustrated with people because I've been trying to help tell people to be prepared and have a backup plan and, you know, 
protect themselves for a long time and it's like, well, well, the economy is booming and stock markets are record high and I mean, no one cares. No one cares about these types of things. And then it's like things go wrong and you guys don't have a plan B and there's no protection. There's no, you haven't protected the downside at all. And it's like, well, I mean, I, I'm not, not trying to say I told you so by any means, but I mean, you always have to protect yourself. And I think that yeah. in sailing, that's probably a mentality that you guys already have, that you're always looking at situations and how can this be dangerous and what are my backups? What is my plan B? What is my plan C? What is my plan D? And everything like that. So I think that's uh, maybe some similarities. Yeah, I agree. I think the, the one difference is that in sailing, you know, the, the experts, the, those that are, you know, we, we look up to um, tend to, you know, decrease their risk appetite. So when things, you know, so we're continually told and all the magazines and all the TV shows and, you know, the YouTube channels should tell you, be cautious, be yeah. cautious, you know, to exercise caution here because no one wants to see, you know, you get into trouble. When it comes to people's lifestyles outside of sailing, the experts will all tell you, especially if you go to your brokers who again work on commission, they all, t most of them will tell you, well, don't be cautious. You know, well, it's good that the markets are booming. Invest now, don't worry about it. You know, sort it out later. You know, uh, borrowing is at record lows after 28. So, you know, it, the difference is that, you know, I don't believe, especially in the UK, that, you know, that the, the markets, the whole financial sector is preaching caution. They, they don't make, that's not how economies work. You know, economies work by, you know, having a, a greater risk appetite, having more confidence in, in how, you know, economies are going to grow. So it always tends to push for, you know, taking greater risks. Mm -hmm. So what about, okay, we're into 2021. We're, we're fully into 2021 now. If my listeners are, are listening to this episode and they're like, yeah, that's my dream. I want to sail around the world. Do you think this is a good time for them to start getting into sailing? Do you think maybe chill out because this is going to be another year of nothing? Um, borders staying closed in the Caribbean? I mean, what's your perspective if someone wants to get into this as a lifestyle? I think it's a brilliant time to start. So that, that's the short answer. I think, it, you know, do it now. And I think the reason that I can say that with such you know, conviction is that if 2020 has shown us anything, it's like that life is short. You know, you really don't know what's around the corner. And all that money that you got saved up in your 401, all that, you know, all, that, all those all that slush fund for the rainy day. This is a rain. This is the rainy day. This is the rainy day. It's the biggest rainy day we've had in 100 years. So that is why now is the right time to do it how you go about doing it i think we've already touched on i definitely would not recommend going out and going to a broker and spending a million bucks on a boat and not sailing off if you've got the million bucks but i think now is the time to at least say look our priorities really have changed mm. you know we are lucky enough hopefully to be through this pandemic with our family and loved ones intact but with a different set of priorities and goals and those goals hopefully should be not squirreling the money away for when, you know, a different time, but to kind of understand that the life that you have is pretty damn precious. And this should really be a wake up call for the 8 billion people on this planet that may not already know that, that it's time to kind of like, without getting too airy fairy to actually start living life. So from that point of view, yes, now is the time to do it. We've touched on how I believe you should go around doing it. I'll go about doing it. 
But one thing that I haven't talked about is that the obstacles to getting from I want to do this to actually doing it. And, and there are the biggest obstacles. There are, there are obvious obstacles. One, I don't have enough money. Two, I don't have enough health. I don't have the health for it. And, you know, three, you know, we've got other commitments to, 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 to life here. Some of those you can't get around. So if you haven't got the money, you don't have the money. There's, there's nothing you can do about that. You know, you, you have to unfortunately be pretty, for, you know, you've got to be in a privileged position to do this. And we are pretty, you know, we, we are very aware of that. Secondly, I, I don't have the health. My health won't keep up to it. And that's either because you have pre-existing health conditions or because you can't get insurance to, to leave. Um, and unfortunately, that is normally a factor of age. You know, you, you get to a certain point. And then third is commitments. Either you've got children, you've got children in college, you've got elderly parents, and there is a golden window of opportunity that everyone hopefully gets where the kids are left and you are still young enough and your parents are still kicking on for you to go. And that is really what you should plan for. We need to go to that time. What, if you can get over those three humps, the biggest hump that you're going to find is yourself the fact that it is terrifying. It is an absolutely terrifying prospect of taking, in many cases, decades of building up security, of networking, family, friends, a job, a house that you've lovingly built, crafted, bought, you know, the kids grew up in, and then saying, nah, we're off. We're just throwing it all to the wind, like literally cashing in our chips and leaving. It's terrifying. And if anyone tells you that it's not, they're a fool. Uh, it, it is... It is I, I, between us honestly deciding that we were going to go and getting over the line, I, apart from selling the business, the practicalities of it, it must have taken about 24 months from the actual point where we're like, okay, well, we've just put the money down for this boat. No longer are we kind of, this isn't just a pipe dream anymore. We've put, we've put our money where our mouths is. In those 24 months, I, I literally, I was in a, a quasi-perpetual sense of like absolute catatonic fear. I'm like, what are you doing? You're giving up careers. You're, you know, we had job security. We had financial security. We had a huge network of friends in our sailing community and in London. And we just literally tossed it all away to, to kind of go on this kind of wayward journey. And that is, I think, the that's what you need to overcome. And there are ways of doing it. Uh, we've already discussed taking it in small steps, not financially bankrupting yourself with the huge big boat first and doing things that are probably reversible. So for instance, we made the active decision to not sell our house, but to rent it Well, we had an apartment, to not sell the apartment, but to rent it out. So that if it all went wrong, we could come back and we still had the apartment. We weren't cutting all those chains. And the secondary benefit is that we could get a little bit of rent from it. So to that point. So when is the time to do it? 2021 is definitely the time to commit to doing it and then give yourself enough time to get all your ducks in a row to action, all the things that we've already talked about in this, in this discussion so that you have a depart date that, you know, as God as your witness does not shift. And that is important. You draw a line in the sand and you go, look, you know what? It's February, 2021 now in I don't know, January 2023, we're leaving. And that's it. It's not shifting. That's it. We're selling everything. We don't need the, the games console. We don't need to be going out to Nando's or, you know, Chick-fil-A today. We're going to put that 10 bucks into a pot and save it for the cruising kitty. So I, I would honestly suggest that if you want to do this, this is what your goal is. You plan for it. You put a date on the fridge. You agree to a date to leave. 
and you take the time to organize your lives because you cannot just drop everything. Mm -hmm. I love it. Amazing. So before we wrap up, I do want to take a minute. I want to hear what you guys have in the store in the future. I mean, I was watching some of your YouTube videos, which are amazing and stunningly beautiful. The cinematography and the views on your videos are amazing. I want to know a little bit what you guys have planned in the future and then where my listeners can find out more and where they can follow your journey. Sure. Yeah. Well, they can follow us uh, on Sailing Ruby Rose, which is the name of our YouTube channel. Our Instagram and Facebook have the same handles at Sailing Ruby Rose. And uh, we, this year, I mean, look, I think that everyone has to be flexible with their plans, but we are in Australia at the moment and we are going to be sailing in Australian waters this year, which we're very excited about. And at the end of the year, we will be taking delivery of our new catamaran. Um, so our new catamaran is a Sea Wind 1370. She's um, going to be an amazing boat. We're really excited. And she should be launched, ready to take delivery. Uh, we're hoping before Christmas. Not, you know, things might slip there, but we're, we're thinking we've been reassured, you know, November, December. She's been built in Vietnam. It's an Australian company who has their factories in Vietnam. And so obviously the logistics are still very much up in the air. How will we get there? Will the borders be open? Are we going to be able to get there? Might we have to ship her somewhere else that we can take delivery? We don't know, but we will be taking delivery of her late in the year. And then once we have our new catamaran, we will be uh, sailing. Well, we don't quite know where, but definitely, you know, doing a lot of remote sailing, you know, crossing oceans, um, going to all those places that we have had on our list for a very long time that we really want to get to. We're desperate to get to the Pacific. Um, that's somewhere that's just always been on our bucket list. You know, there's so many countries and islands in the Pacific that are just so unlike anywhere else in the world. And we just can't wait to explore them by boat. It really is a sailing paradise there. Um, but you know, that's one of many places that we're excited to explore by boat. So yeah, once we take delivery of Ruby Rose too, we'll be, um, yeah, we'll be sailing, I don't know where, but it's going to be some really exciting places and doing some really exciting sailing. Anywhere the wind blows. Anywhere <laughs> the wind blows. We've learned not to make too many very, very firm plans. So we just take life as it comes. Well, congratulations, because um, I think that sounds amazing. And I'm excited to check out more of your guys' videos and watch you guys take delivery of what I expect to be a very, very beautiful boat. So congratulations. Give us that uh, YouTube channel one more time, your website. If people want to reach out to you, if they want to find out more about what you do, where can we send them? So Sailing Ruby Rose on YouTube, you just Google or into your favorite search engine type Sailing Ruby Rose and all of our, uh, our content will come up. Um, we have a website, it's actually yachtrubyrose.com and then Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, we are Sailing Ruby Rose. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time and we'll talk soon, okay? Thank you Pleasure so much. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's interview. Talk soon. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, 
Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.